Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. William Yates. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Dr. Yates is a Chicago surgeon who specializes in hair transplants. Today, he will discuss his entrance into the medical field, the growing diversity in the hair transplant industry, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of the Waymaker Journal, and today in the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have the privilege of having Dr. William Yates, surgeon, hair expert, hair scientist, and a great friend of mine with us today. Welcome, Dr. Yates. Thank you. My pleasure, as always. Very good. Dr. Yates, you grew up in Chicago. You went to Northwestern University and got your BA. Then you went on, uh, stayed on there and got your MD. Uh, then you went to Washington, D.C., Howard University uh, Hospital and got your surgical internship there. Then your general surgeon, surgery residence at Howard University Hospital and then your fellowship in critical care trauma at the University of Maryland. So you got a lot of education behind you, Dr. Yates. Yes, I do. When Actually, when you hear about it and you're doing it, it doesn't seem like that much, but now that you mention it, and I'm thinking back, those were a lot of years, man, you know? So, so Dr. Yates, when did you decide that you wanted to go into the medical field? Was it in high school? Was it in college? When did you sort of make that decision? Um, well, it started early in my life when um, my mom was a, a public school teacher and she would always look at my hands and say I had long, skinny hands. And she watched uh, General Hospital a lot. And this was in the early 60s. And of course, there were no black doctors, you know, on the General Hospital or anywhere. And she, my middle name's Roy. And she would say, Roy, you have such pretty hands. You should be a surgeon. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you're like, yeah, sure, I'd rather, you know, hit a baseball or something like that. And then I guess the event that was really the changing moment, she died when I was a uh, freshman in high school at Kenwood from cancer, kind of just uh, no one knew she was sick. And uh, she was a public school teacher. She went home in June, said she was tired. She got admitted to the hospital and she died in August. So that next year, my sophomore year, I had two choices, either to do like, you know, a lot of people would is rebel and be bad and be mad at the world or not let her life go in vain because she would have wanted me to do better. So I took the second route and said I wanted to be a doctor for that reason that other kids wouldn't lose a parent like I did. So that really I made the decision when I was a sophomore in high school. Wow. Wow. That's that that, that that's amazing. And did you have anyone to sort of help you design that path to becoming a doctor? Or did you kind of figure that out on your own? Well, I had two people that really kind of helped me do it. One was my family practitioner. His name is Walter McFarland. And he was like the Jeffersons. You know how black people back then, I grew up in Lake Meadows, as you know, and he lived in Pill Hill. And we would go to his house and I'd be like, oh my God, he had a pool, he had goldfish, you know. 
They had, you know, fan, they, they ate TV dinners. And, you know, back then, my parents are not going to let us eat TV dinners anyway. But he was a family practitioner. And he also called me Roy and said, you know, you should be a doctor. And then he kind of mentored me in that way. And I had a good friend who was a couple years ahead of me in school named Glenn Gardner. And he went to St. Ignatius. And he was such a good student. His family's actually the people beside uh, behind Soft Sheen and those hair products, the Gardner family. He got in a six-year med program at Northwestern where it cut off two years of medical school and they accepted you to medical school from high school. And so he said, Bill, you can do this. I got in it, you know, just study hard. You can do it. So basically, I followed Glenn Gardner's path all the way to med school. Wow. So Dr. Yates sounds like he was a, a way maker in a sorts. No question. He he still is. He's a, a, a prominent anesthesiologist in uh, Oak Brook. But uh, he's kind of been my personal mentor that I've always looked up to. And how did you decide on Northwestern? Um, I was in a hurry and he told me that you could get, a, you know, to medical school, cut two years off and get accepted immediately. And if it was good enough for him, it was good enough for me. I applied to Howard as well and a couple other schools, but Northwestern had a lot of prestige. It had a good name. And I just put my mind to it that I was going to get in that accelerated program and, you know, be a doctor. And in that program, did you decide hair was going to be the thing at that moment? What type of doctor were you really sort of gearing towards? Like most doctors, when you go in, you're always thinking something unless you've been exposed to medicine. Like a lot of my classmates whose parents are doctors, they kind of have a head start on the whole game. They know they're going to be a neurosurgeon, ophthalmologist, so forth and so on. Everyone else is just a guess. You know, you think you want to be a family practitioner. I thought I wanted to be a cancer doctor because my mom uh, passed and I ended up actually being a trauma doctor uh, as a surgeon, dealing with basically all the people, gang violence, the, the shootings and stabbings in Washington, D.C. and St. Louis. That's what I ended up doing, being a trauma surgeon and an ICU surgeon. But it didn't start that way. I wanted to be a family doctor or a cancer doctor. Um, that's how it started. So you went from trauma and did you immediately go to hair or... Were there some steps in between there? There weren't many. No, it wasn't many steps. I did trauma for about 15 years. And like we were talking before the program, I was losing my hair since I was a senior in high school. Like if I look back at my high school yearbook, I can see little inklings of my hairline moving back. I had a hair transplant when I was a trauma surgeon. I was 38 years old and it changed my life. I had it done by a a gentleman who's a well-known hair surgeon. And I did it on a whim. I was watching a commercial at 2 a.m. and saw this guy and I went there the next week. It worked. It helped my self-image. And you never know after you have these procedures um, because you start doing better. You don't know, is it internal because you feel better about yourself and you're presenting yourself in a different way? Or is it external? Other people are seeing you differently and treating you different. Or is it some combination? But I'll say this. After I had a hair transplant, it just seemed everything was easier, you know, just in society, socially, everything was easier. So 
I switched and became a hair transplant physician in 2005. So I've been doing it now, you know, several years. So, so Dr. Gates, why do some people, you said you start losing your hair uh, and, and as a senior in high school. Yep. Why do some people lose their hair early? And then I got some friends who are old as me and they got a head full of hair. Don't look like they've ever lost a strand. Okay. Well, the the news that they, they male pattern baldness and female pattern baldness, it's it's the great equalizer among men and women because it's mainly genetic. The minute you're conceived, um, the genetic process has already dictated a blueprint for when you'll lose your hair, how fast, how slow. Um, it's pretty much out of your hands. So most hair loss is genetic, whether it's in men or women. And whether it's going to be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50, that's also in the preconceived blueprint. You know, you don't know it, but it's nothing you can control. Is there something people could do to slow it down, at least? Or is it, it is what it is? Um, it is what it is. And the footnote to that is there are some medications that men can take to block the balding hormone. One is called Propecia. It's a pill you have to take every day. And you have to take that uh, foreseeably for the rest of your life. And there are side effects like sexual side effects. So if you tell somebody, hey, this might help you save your hair, but you know the sex thing might not be so well. I think they're gonna they lose like, their hair, Dr. Yates. They'll probably uh, lose right, their right. hair. Some people, well, <laughs> you know, some people, maybe they won't even get to that point without hair. So you gotta make that decision, you know? <laughs> That's a personal choice. <laughs> So in 2005, you, you you get into the hair business. Yes. Uh, did you start your own business at that time or were you working for somebody else? No, I was working for a big, uh, big group called Bosley. And people probably, you know, for more from our vintage, you're more familiar with the Bosley commercials with the white gentleman with the white hair and the guys with no hair looking sad. And then they have hair and they're drinking a glass of wine with two nice ladies, you know, <laughs> they were known for those type of commercials, you know, when we were growing up and I would watch those commercials and I didn't see hardly one black person on them, but I felt comfort that, wow, wow, if I lose my hair, I can call Dr. Bosley and he can help me. So I started to work for them uh, under their corporate structure. And is that the, who did your hair, hair transplant? Uh no. Well, actually, one of the doctors from Bosley has I've had more than one hair transplant. Um, one of the doctors there, they're all very well trained. Yes, I would trust them with my hair. One of them did. Yes. OK. And you are the first African-American I've ever met to sort of do this sort of work. Is it common for people of color to be in this business or not? No, it's uh you know, I just saw a statistic over the weekend where the doctors in the U.S., maybe 5% are black. I would say maybe 0.5% are people of any color in, in this field. It's becoming a lot more, but it's still mainly, you know, ruled by elderly white men. I'm not going to even say young white men, elderly white men. And is that because we are not familiar with uh, the practice or is it that it's economically not feasible for us to go through all of the training and everything? Why are the numbers so low? Because it's kind of a, um, 
the path to get here is not something that's straightforward. Like, you know, say if you just want to be a regular surgeon, brain surgeon, heart surgeon, whatever, that path, I mean, that track is pretty much laid out for you. To be a hair surgeon, since you don't do your work in the hospital, there's really no track for somebody really to teach you how to do it and kind of uncover behind the wizard's curtain really how to do it. There's really no one to do it. So you have to seek that out yourself or get hired by these big groups. And it's not many of these groups around. So it's it's really hard for you to dictate your fate as you would just being another type of doctor. It's difficult. The bar to entry is difficult. Put it like that. And and is that changing as time goes on? Do you see that improving, changing in some way that more people who look like us get into that field? Yeah, it's changing a, a lot. I know a lot of females that do black, you know, well-trained doctors that do what I do. Um, because one, we just weren't aware that this even existed. And two, you know, doing African-American hair is a whole nother animal than doing Caucasian hair. And I can tell you now that I'd be more inclined to go to an African-American doctor because these nuances are just something that if you know them from growing up, it makes your life a lot easier as being a physician to treat these disease processes. So I think as more people see me and see doctors like me doing it, um, they start asking questions and call me and, you know, I'll help do whatever I can to make it a reality for them. So I know you serve and uh, all type of clients. Tell us what are some of the primary differences in doing uh, working on African-Americans who are losing their hair and working on wh white individuals who are losing their hair? What are some of the primary challenges and differences? I guess the main difference is the type, the, the hair follicle. And our hair follicle is very curly and you can't even see under the skin how this curliness continues like a corkscrew. So it's very easy to injure when you remove those follicles because a hair transplant is really nothing like farming. I mean, it's just like farming, like taking plants, I say, from the backyard, meaning the back of your head and the sides and moving it to the top. So when you remove the hair, you have to make sure you don't injure the hair. And this is the problem that it takes a lot of years to be able to get African-American hair out correctly without injuring it to transplant it to the front. And if you don't appreciate those nuances, there'll be problems. And it kind of hurts my heart in that because I see a lot of black people you know, online and so forth have hair transplants at places who boast to be the best in African-American hair. These people aren't African-American whatsoever. And I think their results are marginal. You know, I'm not going to say that, but I, it it's disappointing that our own race in 2022 is not smart enough to understand that there might be a difference, you know. Um, so I'd say the, the, the toughest difference is just how the, the hair is situated in the scalp and not injuring it. And then the other difference is that we develop something like a lot of women develop in the edges that is called traction alopecia and scarring alopecia. If you're not familiar with those disease processes and just start transplanting them, you won't have the best results. So there are pretty much two sets of rules for transplanting. You have to be aware, Afrocentric patients and then others. Caucasian hair usually is very straightforward. 
It's a you know straight up and down hair follicle. Just make sure the scalp is healthy and it'll grow. Now, now, Dr. H, you also have other procedures that you offer uh, to clients that may not want a hair transplant. Talk about some of those other procedures. Sure. Well, the one I think that is a, a magic trick that's called, it's called scalp micropigmentation. So this is where you see it a lot in, in guys, if it's done right, it's kind of like, I'm looking at myself here, like you can see on my beard, like five o'clock shadow, it creates five o'clock shadow on your scalp. So if you're losing hair and don't have enough to do a transplant, you can give that illusion, you know, like you, you just buzzed your head, kind of like how Vin Diesel's hair used to look. You know, guys can tell who's bald and who just buzzes their hair. You know, a lot of guys think they're fooling somebody when they they'll say they're not bald. But I mean, guys who are who are uh, not bald, they never take a bick and go to their head. They leave enough to let you know that this is a choice. Okay, I got hair. So we create that image on the scalp. That's called micropigmentation. It's a it's beautiful thing done right. Looks beautiful. We do that all the time. The other things we do for people who don't want a hair, hair transplant, PRP, these are all like new treatments where we take, you know, maybe 20 to 30 cc's of your blood, which is less than, you know, like a Dixie cup full. And in your blood, there are growth factors. We separate, get these growth factors out and re-inject them into your scalp. These growth factors theoretically go to the hair follicle that's not making good hair and re-energizes that hair follicle to produce better hair. So that's been working very well for us. So we do a lot of PRP. Um, we do a lot of microneedling. Microneedling is basically making tiny little um, incisions in the scalp that you can't see, and it creates micro injury and the body secretes growth factors and collagen again, to stimulate the hair that was weakened to grow. So those are probably the most famous things that we do that I think works the best. There's something new that's called exosomes that I'll just mention here. It's like everybody's talking about stem cells and things like that. Exosome therapy is in that line of stem cells where we inject that into the scalp as well. And that works well too. So those are the main things that we do for hair that aren't surgery. Um, and they all work well. Like if somebody comes in and they're losing their hair and they want to try PRP, exosomes, great, let's do it. You know, but we need to do something. The problem with most people, they're in denial. You know, they're just thinking that they got, they have more hair than they do. And the rule is usually it takes you to lose 30% of your natural hair before your eye can tell that you've lost hair. So you're already 30% down. Some people say 50%. So when you can start to tell you're thinning, you've lost quite a bit of hair. So Dr. Yates, if you're in your early 20s and you notice you start to lose your hair, what would your advice be to a man or woman who are losing their hair in their early 20s? I would see a dermatologist first because there are some things other than just the um, genetics, which is going to be the, the, the case in 95% of the case. But there's 5% of the time there's different medical illnesses, different medications. Uh, sometimes some temporary things can cause hair loss. 
like, you know, accelerated stress or their autoimmune diseases. Like everybody's seen somebody with these patches of loss on their head. That's called alopecia areata. There are some things that don't have to end up with you ending up being bald. They can be treated with medications uh, or, you know, or stopping the medication you're on. So the first person you would go to would be your family doctor, then to a dermatologist. People usually don't see me until they've done those things and their doctor just says, hey, you know, as we said earlier, it is what it is. And then they come to me to see, well, it is what it is. What can we do with that? You know, and someone in their 40s or 50s, what is your advice to them? 40s or 50s, it's going to be a a lot easier to figure out what's going on with them. Most of the time, 40s or 50s, they'll come see me first because it's usually, you know, not going to be something that popped out of the blue. It's gradual. They have the typical pattern for genetic hair loss. Um, So I I can make those diagnoses myself. And then we decide, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to do non-surgical things. Uh, Am I going to send you to a dermatologist or are we going to go straight to a hair transplant? It just depends on what the circumstances are. Um, But you should see somebody Uh, like going to the Internet and, you know, hair loss is a billion dollar industry. And if all those things on TV, if they worked, I wouldn't have a job, number one. And uh, I, I can tell you, I don't know any of those things that I see on TV all the time that are worth a nickel, you know, and it's all marketing and it's just a waste of time. And when you lose your hair, you're working against the clock. It's not like you have infinity, you know. So I would get off the Internet and go see somebody who knows what they're talking about. So, you know, what's going on. And Dr. H, you have your own products also. How did you decide that you wanted to create your own shampoos, conditioners and things like that? How how did you decide you wanted to get into that business? Well, people always would come to me and say, well, what shampoo did I recommend? So forth and so on. So I started looking into shampoos, what makes good ones, bad ones. So I just wanted to simplify my life and make it so that the shampoos, one, didn't cause any harm, scientifically had something in it that can actually grow hair, which mine do, um, and actually worked and did something that you could see or feel a difference after the first use. Um, So I developed a line with natural ingredients that does one does two things. We have a thickening line of hair shampoos and conditioners, and we have a hydrating line because we want you to switch back and forth between thickening, thickening and hydrating. And then we also have what's called an apple cider vinegar shampoo. And that's kind of the reset button. And, you know, everybody puts, you know, grease or whatever on their hair and oils. And this apple cider vinegar restores the, the scalp pH back to normal, just like a reset button on your computer. And then the other thing I have is hair fibers, which I think are the best in the world, where you just sprinkle. I use them every day. Um, You just sprinkle them on your hair um, and it makes your hair instantly thicker. And it's nothing but keratin. So it washes out with shampoo. If it rains, it doesn't come out. People always telling me, well, if somebody touches it, will it come out? But I mean, in real life, how many people in the last year have touched your hair? I don't know anybody's touched mine. People don't touch your hair, you know, when you get to be 30. But people always ask me that. They're like, what if people touch your hair? I'm like, who touches your hair? Um, But even if they did, it doesn't come out. Um, I think uh, the fibers like here, I'm just going to show you here. These are fibers 
and this is an atomizer and it kind of shoots out these little keratin fibers. It's kind of hard to see. Let me just show you another one right quick. Um, that here's a jar and you would apply, I don't know, you can kind of see the black powder coming down. Yep. And I just put it like, like this, you know, and then just rub it into your hair and your hair's thicker. And when I wash my hair, it comes out. Do I wash my hair every day? No. Um, that's always another question. How often should you wash your hair? Everybody's different. Uh, you wash it when it's dirty, you know, um, and African-Americans in general don't make the oil that Caucasians do. So we really should not be washing our hair every day. So once a week I wash my hair, you know, and start all over again. So, so Dr. Yates, what is thickening shampoo? Does it actually make your hair thicker or the hair fiber wider? What is that? I see it on shampoos all the time. Like, yes. Well, usually the rule is with a thickening shampoo. Um, when you were little, did you ever eat a ballpark, Frank? You know how yes. they say it plumps when you cook it? It's dark, you know? Yeah. It's kind of the same thing as a ballpark, Frank, in that the hair shaft has little openings. And there's what we call a humectant, which is just a substance which goes in the hair shaft, helps the hair shaft absorb water so your hair looks plumper. Your hair actually, in reality, is it thicker? No, but it looks and feels thicker because your hair is allowed, the shaft absorbs some water so it, it looks and feels thicker. So that's usually how thickening shampoos work. Do they organically thicken your hair? No. You know, to make your hair thicker organically, you have to do some something under the soil, under the scalp to make it thicker. But uh, hair dressings are nothing more than I say, like waxing your car. It's working on the outside, not where the engine is, you know. So that's usually how they work. So so, so we're going to make a U-turn right here, Dr. Yates. You're also in the security business. Yes. So tell us how you went from hair to security? Well, I was always kind of in the security business in the back of my mind, okay? okay. So I was a trauma surgeon because in the uh, emergency departments, I would see so many people come in with a pretty dangerous situations where, you know, people get shot and they come in with guns, so forth and so on. So I said, why aren't there metal detectors in the hospitals? You know, uh, why aren't there metal detectors in the schools? Just think of all these shootings at the schools if they had metal detectors, one, it would be a deterrent. All these kids, you know, you can't wake up and say, well, you know, I'm going to blow up the school or do this knowing you got metal detectors, even though a lot of people reject how they look. So in my mind, I said, there's got to be a simple solution. So I started working with the manufacturing company to manufacture metal detection equipment that looked more streamlined than what we were used to having that actually will pick up whether you have a gun or knife, but can tell the difference between that and a computer and a phone. So it doesn't stop everybody because, and I think this equipment's gonna be in every place because the world's just too dangerous. So that was basically my parlay over to the security business was because I was sick and tired of nobody doing anything about gun violence and it's preventable, or at least some, there should be some deterrent. You People just shouldn't be able to walk in places without thinking twice about it and just open fire. So that's how it started. And that's progressed to more x-ray equipment. Um, I sell uh, because I believe in this COVID preven prevention and what's something called air ionization. 
because that disables the, the COVID virus better than a HEPA filter to help America get back to work. But the metal detection is dear to my heart because I think it's a simple solution. I think all schools should have it. And I don't think there should even be any argument against it. So, so Dr. Gates, what year did you get into the security business? 2017. Wow. So you've been in that business about five years now. Right. So, so Dr. Gates, I always talk about this moment when I heard Hill Harper talk about options, the actor Hill Harper talk about mm-hmm. options. And Hill Harper graduated uh, three times from Harvard University, right? And as he says, he has a job that you don't even need a high school diploma for. But the degrees gave him options. Hearing all the things that you're doing, talk about options to our audience. You were not just happy and and satisfied being in the hair business. You also wanted to do something else. What is that in a person's mind that talks and wants to give them additional options? Well, as you said, first of all, options are everything. And everyone has to understand in life. And, you you know, I have four kids. And when they were growing up, they would always say, I want to be a rapper. I want to shoot balls. I want to do this. I want to do that. But the reality of black people and for 400 years, we weren't allowed to read. We have to read. We have to get an education. Uh, I don't care what you do. And I'd always tell my kids, and it might sound flippant, but I would tell them, get as many letters behind your name in the shortest amount of time as you can. And um, just because of options. Um, And a lot of people I've seen in business that are super, you know, super smart and don't have any degrees, but they get pigeonholed and they can't move forward, especially with African-Americans. Because unfortunately, I found throughout my life, instead of people trying to make sure you get to the highest place you can, they're always looking for reasons to make sure that maybe there's somebody else out there instead of you. So you always have to have stack your deck twice as thick as anyone else. And that's not bad because everything you learn makes you better. And the reason that I've taken upon myself to do these different projects, because as you get older and wiser, you become less afraid of failure. You become less afraid of what the person next to you is going to say about you. And you see other people doing things that, you know, you think, oh, I could have done that. And this guy did that or she did that. What? And then you sit down and think, well, I got an answer to this. Um, I'm going to do it. And when you understand that, and it took me to I was at least 40 to understand that, that, you know, your thoughts are just as valuable as anybody else. Now, the problem comes in and people don't realize is access to capital because everybody has an idea of something to do. The trick is, how do you take that idea and make it happen, number one, and number two, monetize from that idea and and don't get your ideas stolen along the way. But to answer your question, I guess, is the older I get and the more people I meet, you know, you become very comfortable in your your skin expressing yourself and letting people know the skills you have. I mean, I have so many ideas. I mean, sometimes it gets ridiculous because you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, am I that smart? And I'm being funny <laughs> now, but I'm just saying that there are just so many things out there that when you think about, you could contribute to, you know. 
So uh, parlaying with uh, Hill and yourself and uh, I guess Reginald Lewis, uh, who wrote a book years ago when I was, you know, younger, um, you know, says, why do white guys have all the fun? Um, and I would always say to my kids, I'm like, why are these white people smiling so much? And, you know, going, we you know, when you're on vacation, why are they, all, you know? And then I realized, shoot, you get all this, you're happy too. And as, as well as, as your book, you know, The Secrets of Corporate Strategy. Once you, it only takes once, once you see behind the wizard's curtain and you're paying attention, you'll be unstoppable, you know? And I saw behind the wizard's curtain. Once you understand that most of this stuff you see out here with other people, and I'm not talking about black people now, that it's all smoke and mirrors, it's incestual, and, you know, it's, uh, they're very mediocre at best, but yet they've achieved things that I can't even dream of, you know? Once you see that and understand it, then you're unstoppable. So, Well, Dr. Yates, we here at the Waymaker community, we talked about every successful person has had multiple Waymakers in their life. You talked about the doctor who sort of put you on a path to becoming a doctor. What other Waymakers have you had in your life that have sort of stepped in intentionally and made a turn left or right to help you? Well, we'll start with the, the the easy ones. My grandmother was a school teacher from Mississippi who um, every day when I come home, she'd tell me one thing, say, Roy, get your lesson. She'd ask me, did I get my lesson? And I'd be like, I get so sick of it. I'm like, yeah, I got my lesson, <laughs> you know? But I would tell my kids that every day. Did you get your lesson? Said, you always have to get your lesson. So my grandmother, who's from, you know, uh, Piney Woods, Mississippi, and was a school teacher there, I mean, I tell people now, get your lesson. You got one thing to do, put down the ball, get your lesson. Um, my family doctor, Dr. McFarlane, of course, my good friend, uh, Glenn Gartner, who is still my good friend. And then we move up the ladder to one of the best doctors I've ever met in my life, Dr. LaSalle LaFall, who was chairman of surgery at Howard University for several years. He spoke eight languages. He played tennis. He lived all around life. He just wasn't, you know, what you think of a guy, you know, with a microscope and so forth. He was a uh, almost a surrogate father. And and another person, Dr. Leslie Bond, who was my mentor in St. Louis. When I uh, went to St. Louis, he got me on a lot of boards and I became an examiner for the board of surgery because of him. He recognized talent in me and he kind of mentored me and uh, he's passed away, but he's one of the best men in my life. And I wouldn't be uh, complete if not saying, you know, my dad as well. And my dad said one thing to me when I was in high school that has resonated ever. He said, Roy, anything a lot of people can do in life is not that hard. And I would tell that to my kids, too, meaning that it's, he didn't say it was easy. But, you know, if a lot of people are doctors, which they are, a lot of people think, oh, I can't be a doctor. Like, why not? You know, of course you can be a doctor. You know, is it easy? No, but you can be a doctor, you know. Now, being an astronaut, like one of my kids would say, well, what about an astronaut? Because my kids are like, they always got to say something. I would say, well, probably being an astronaut's not hard either. But, you know, it's still one of those professions people don't know about. But, you know, so that's those are probably and my mom, you know, of course, it's getting like the Academy Awards. I got to keep going because <laughs> you know, I don't want somebody to see it and say that ungrateful, blah, blah, blah. I did this. I, but, you know, if I'm missing anybody, uh, you know, I'm going to say I'm sorry. You know, but uh, those are the ones who I quote from their playbook 
the most, those people. Final question, Dr. Yates. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who's in high school, maybe in college right now, listening to this and said, I want to be like that guy. I want to get into the hair business. It's not that many black people doing it. How do they do that? Give them three or four things they can do to start that journey. Okay. Well, the first, of course, is be a doctor. Um, you know, you got to be a doctor to do it. Um, number two, I would do a residency. I just wouldn't jump into it right from medical school. I'd either become a dermatologist or get something behind your, your back as something else, just internal medicine. That'll take three or four years. Once that is done and you're sure you want to be a hair doctor, you can look under the Society of Hair Surgeons and they have pictures of everybody, or you can just Google African-American hair transplant surgeons and find one of them call them and they'll mentor you of what you should do because what you should do, and I'm mentoring a couple doctors with me right now, you should come visit with the doctor, have him or her show you how to do the procedure, how the business works, how to do good work, how to handle you know problem patients, problem work. And then it's a business, so you have to learn how to market. Um, so we do a lot of, I think, great marketing. Of course, social media is a given. Um, but the best thing to do would be to go seek out a doctor, an African-American doctor who is doing well. And I am I know that person will definitely mentor you because they'll be glad to know that there are other people around to carry the torch. But as far as doing other things or even joining groups like I did with Bosley and things like that, I would kind of stay away from that if I were you, because that's a corporate structure and as smart as those corporations are, they don't have your best interests at heart because how could they? Because they have to have their best interests at heart. So you want to go with a person that you can develop a relationship with. That's what I would say. And Dr. H, final thing, people who want to get your services and want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Um, easy enough. Uh, if you just Google Bill Yates, um, Chicago, you'll find me, um, Dr. Yates Hair Science. We do a lot of YouTube videos, Dr. Yates, uh, YouTube videos. We're on Instagram, Facebook, you name it. I guess they make me do TikToks from here from time to time. So I do TikToks. Um, but I'm trying not to be a clown because <laughs> I see a lot of doctors on there. And as we know, a lot of people can get away with stuff that you and I can't. So I kind of walk a fine line with, you know, you know, clowning around with the medicine thing. But I do do TikToks. Yes. Well, Dr. Yates, uh, this has been an amazing uh, interview. Uh, Waymaker always like to introduce people and their careers and their professions that are slightly different yeah. and unexpected. Mm -hmm. And clearly you have one of those careers and professions that are. So thank you so much for sharing your journey and your story with the Waymaker audience. We appreciate you. And uh I'm sure you'll get some business from this. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Lewis. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Dr. William Yates. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know in our social media at Waymaker Culture. And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.